0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Susan Everingham, and I'm the director of RAND's Pittsburgh office, and I have the pleasure of welcoming you to today's session of Conversations at RAND. Um, we are recording this and it will be available on RAND's website, www.ran.org. Um, today, we're going to have a panel discussion on accountability in education, and the panel is going to be moderated by Darlene Opfer. Darlene is our brand new director of RAND's education unit, and um, she will introduce the rest of the panelists. So, again, welcome, and I hope you enjoy the, the conversation. Yes, thank you very much for coming and joining us. We have uh, three panelists this morning from the education unit who do, who do research on education. And so on my immediate left, we have John Ingberg, who's a senior economist here at RAND. We have Laura Hamilton, who's a senior behavioral scientist. And we have Dan McCaffrey, who's the PNC chair in education policy analysis. And so um, what we thought we would do is sort of have a, a discussion around a number of questions that we've uh, been thinking about in in terms of education reform. Um, Education reform and accountability has really sort of risen on uh, everyone's radar. I think it's done so because people have become more aware of um, how U.S. students compare internationally. We've become more aware of how schools do with our poor and minority students. And we've become more aware of the role that education plays in in sort of economic development and economic prosperity. And so I think these things have led to this increased focus. Um, It particularly led to the passage of the No Child Left Behind Act. So um, I was thinking that we could start our conversation there with discussing um, what we've learned or what have we learned from the No Child Left Behind Act and how is what we've learned feeding into where we are now in the discussion.
1: Um, Well, first, just uh, I think everybody's heard about No Child Left Behind and um, a lot of people I know have sort of a negative reaction to it because it's gotten a lot of um, negative press lately. I want to first summarize sort of what the law does. Um, The main features of it include the requirement that states administer tests to, to all public school students in grades three through eight in mathematics and in reading or English language arts. They also have to administer tests in those subjects um, at one grade in high school. Um, There's a requirement for science testing as well, um, but that's gotten a little bit less emphasis because the science doesn't have to count in the accountability ratings for the schools. Um, So based on those reading and math tests, schools are given a rating. um, They're given targets that they need to meet. um, And if they don't meet those targets, they're subject to sort of an escalating set of consequences, starting with. The requirement that you provide choice to your students to give them the opportunity to transfer to a higher performing school um, you know all the way down to something called reconstitution where you're supposed to go in and replace the entire staff of the school um, very few schools have gotten to that point but that's that's kind of um, you know one of the main endpoints of of the set of sanctions imposed by nclb um, RAND has been doing a lot of work looking at the implementation of it, both nationally um, and in a few selected states, including Pennsylvania. Um, and one of the things that we've found is that although most of what we hear in the press is sort of negative, there have been, I'd say, both negative and positive consequences. So, on the positive side, um, one of the requirements that NCLB has imposed is that um, schools need to report not only the performance of their overall student population, but they need to report it by subgroup and the subgroups include um, low-income students, students from different racial or ethnic groups, um, English language learners, uh, students receiving special education services. And as a result of that requirement, um, schools are telling us that they've started paying more attention to groups of students who in the past um, you know, might have been ignored to some degree. Um, So for example, special ed students in the past were often exempted from these kinds of tests and so the schools didn't always worry about what was happening with them Now they really need to pay attention to that group. And so that seems to be something that um, is a positive outcome of the law. We've also seen, uh, we've had schools tell us that they're more clearly focused on student learning as being the the you know central goal of their school, Um, you know, sort of being able to come together with a, a more singular focused mission. Um, but on the other hand, we've seen some, some potentially problematic responses as well. Um, and, and probably the, the, the most significant one is, is um, the fact that we're only measuring a limited number of outcomes. Um, and so we see schools really scrambling to focus on those outcomes, um, and oftentimes at the expense of things that we're not measuring. Um, so the one that we hear about most is that schools are spending more time teaching mathematics and reading, and they're spending less time on art and physical education and science and social studies and all the things that don't count for accountability. Um, But what we've also found is that within those subjects of reading and math, um, schools are spending more time on content that's tested and less time on content that's not tested. So for example, in reading, um, we have teachers saying that they're assigning fewer novels um, and having students spend more time reading short passages and answering multiple-choice questions about them. Um, So this is a concern because what we see when we look at the the tests and we look at the standards that states have developed, is that the tests tend to really focus on just a subset of the standards, the ones that are easy to measure with a multiple-choice format, Um, They tend to measure sort of lower level more basic skills and don't generally do as good a job measuring problem solving and some of the more complex skills that we all want our students to be (laughs) developing. Um, So that shift of instructional time and effort um, is something that's raised concerns. Um, Another concern has been um, the fact that NCLB puts a lot of emphasis on whether students perform at a level that's called proficient. So each state has to set a cut score on its test. They actually set several cut scores. Um, but the proficient one is the one that counts. And so if a student's above that, it's good, and if the student's below that, it's bad. Um, And so what you see schools doing is focusing a lot on a group of kids who are called the bubble kids. Those are the ones who are just below that cut score, Um, and they work really hard to get them above that cut score. Um, And teachers tell us that a lot of times the kids who are already performing well above that level and the kids who are well below that level get shortchanged because moving those kids isn't going to have as big an effect on your rating as as moving those bubble kids. Um, the third thing I'll mention that, that we've seen as, as a potential problem is um, teachers have described negative effects on morale um, because of this and it's not simply the fact that their performance is being measured but it's, it's the, the perception that the goals they're expected to meet are really not reachable um you know using any any realistic uh techniques um so they feel like they're being held able, held accountable for something that they don't have complete control over and this is particularly the case for schools that have high levels of student mobility so kids are coming in and out during the course of the year and it's very hard to um you know to guarantee that all your kids will be proficient in march or april when the when the test is administered Um, So these problems that we've documented and that other organizations have documented um, have been leading to a lot of discussion about what kinds of changes we might want to think about as the law is reauthorized.
0: Um, So as we think about the law being reauthorized, are there things that um, you've talked about things that we've learned, are there things that we've learned that are now sort of pushing the next agenda uh, particularly?
1: Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I would say. I mean, I think um, there, there are several things. One of them is the need to create better assessments that measure a broader range of skills. So, so stop relying exclusively on multiple multiple choice tests. Um, but another another one that I think we're planning to talk about more is is um, a movement toward measuring growth rather than just measuring whether your student is proficient or not. So, under the current system. Um, If you have a student who's performing well below proficient, and you make a lot of progress with that student, but you don't quite get to that proficient level, um, that really doesn't help you um, in your accountability rating. And So there's a lot more concern now about trying to develop measures that will actually look at how much students are growing rather than where they are at a single point in time.
0: So this um, this emphasis on measuring student growth is also tied to um, how we assess the effectiveness of teachers, and this has become a really big issue um, at the federal level and also at state and local levels. And, and particularly here in Pennsylvania, we have a bill in the legislature right now that is looking at making these growth scores, value-added scores, uh, public at, at the school, the teacher and the student level. And so um, Dan has done a lot of work in this area. And so Dan, could you um, help us understand some about how value-added analysis works and some of its limitations?
2: Sure. Um, let me start with one thing I wanted to say um, before I talk, tell more about what value-added is. And I think it's an important Follow up to the question you mm-hmm. asked, Laura. Is there something we've learned that I think is really changing the conversation? And I think one of the things we've learned, and this has come out of the NCLB testing because we have all these mm-hmm. test scores. We've now actually done a lot of analyses on those, and there's been a lot of work over the last decade or so showing that when you start to look at differences among teachers and look at the growth of students among teachers, that they're finding very large differences among teachers m- and differences that are meaningful. So that you know, a really high-performing teacher and a low-performing teacher, the differences in their students' outcomes are, you know, measured in months of extra learning that you might have if you want to use that kind of metric. And I think that's part of the reason why the, the discussion has really changed the teachers and that no longer can we really say we don't have any evidence that there are differences in teachers. We now have it and it's really made people very interested in that. But uh, more specifically to your, your question about, about value added and about um, <coughs> what it is. I, as Laura said, the current method with NCLB, we, we sort of take students at a point in time and we look at how they're doing. So you take all the students in a school at the end of a year, how are they doing, and that's how we measure the, the, the achievement of the students. It's sort of a level and it's a very static measure. But the idea with, with growth and value added is that we're going to look at students over time. We're going to track the same student's achievement over multiple years. And then using that multiple years of achievement, we're going to make an assessment of how much they've grown in a year, and use that to, to make an evaluation of a school. So, for instance, we got, the idea is basically sort of take, take their past performance and, and sort of think about, okay, someone who's over, over the long term has generally been doing pretty well, then we're going to say how well do we think they'll be doing this year. So a student's been doing generally well, we'll say if they're, de- if they're doing, you know, about the same as we'd expect them to do, then they'd be okay. If they're doing better than expected, they were sort of saying they've had, you know, positive growth relative to what we'd expect. If they're doing less than what we might expect, they'd have negative growth. And then what we'll do is that if, we, if a class is full or school is full of a lot of students who've had positive growth, we would say that school or class has sort of positive value added. And if, we, if the class would generally have a lot of students who did less than we might expect them to grow based on their prior achievement, then we would, turn, then we would say they'd have negative value added. So basically, value added is you're sort of using a kid's, you're tracking a, a student's performance over time and using their historic performance, to make a prediction, and then comparing this year against that and sort of then averaging that up to either the school or the, the class level. And one of the things that's really important, as, and as Laura sort of hinted at, one of the things that bothers people with the static measures is that, you know, a lot of that depends on what the kids have brought with them. So, you know, where they were in the past, um, stu- schools that teach a lot of low-income students, minority students, students generally at risk for low educational achievement, They, those schools generally do worse on these measures, regardless of sort of how much the kids grow in a year and how much is coming out in the school. Growth measures tend to be less sensitive and less, less related to those kinds of characteristics. And so by using growth measures, people believe you can sort of, you know, distinguish what the kids brought with them and then make a better assessment of what the schools have really contributed. So you get a sort of cleaner picture of what the schools are, are contributing. And for that reason, I think lots of people, um are very enthusiastic about growth. And I think that's true both of policymakers and, and yeah. educators as well. I think they yeah. feel that many of them feel that it's, uh, it's a more positive way to look at what they're doing and get a fairer picture of what they're doing as opposed to who they're teaching and who, who they're working with. Okay. Um, however, uh, there are some limitations I think we, we need to be careful of. And one of those are is that what people want to do is because we've made these adjustments and because the way I think value-added has been presented and I think even because of the name value-added, there's a tendency for people to want to make this attribution that the the growth that we see in the kids in a school or a class, we can attribute to the school and class and we kind of over make that attribution that instead of believing that this is one measure and it gives us more evidence about what's happening in the school or class, we want to over interpret that as sort of attributing it all to the school and the class. And there's Lots of reasons to believe that that's not, you know, necessarily 100% true. There are many other sources that contribute to students' growth, just like there is sources that contribute to, to their status at any, and achievement at any point. And in particular, when you start talking about teachers, it becomes, it becomes particularly challenging to make the attribution that what you're getting for an individual student is related to what an individual teacher did. You have, you know, you always have the trouble that a teacher's teaching in a school and it's hard to separate out that context students have taught by many and multiple um, teachers so it's hard to sort of sort out the contributions of any one teacher as opposed to to others um, and so that's one of the problems. One of the other issues and especially this is particularly problematic when you're looking at, at individual teacher measures is that they're they're quite um, what statisticians would say is noisy or they sort of vary a lot from year to year so if you sort of look at the value added you get for a teacher in one year and then you look at the next year and you get annual measures on the teacher, there'll be a lot of variation. For instance, if you look at something like you sort of say, okay, I'm going to take all the teachers who are in the bottom 20 percent of the teachers in this year, uh, what proportion of those would be in the bottom 20 percent if I, you know, repeated the measures next year? And what they tend to find in various studies is somewhere between 25 and 40 percent of the teachers who were in the bottom... 20% in one year will be there the next year. So there's a lot of teachers who fall in and out of that, meaning there's a lot of variation from year to year. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, what the makeup of your individual class in any year adds just a lot of sensitivity to those specific kids and the sort of way those kids get along together and the other context and things that are happening in that year. Um, so one thing that's important when we're thinking about this is to always be th- thinking about you'll probably want to average things across years and use multiple years to improve some of that performance. Um, one of the other things that, that is, is also a problem is that although we like value-added and these growth measures do a lot to sort of remove the kind of strong um, sense of, um, correlation with the student's background, they don't completely remove it. And in particular, some of the methods that are used out there don't do a very good job at all. So, in, for instance, with some methods that we were exploring, um, sort of doing some uh, investigations of, we found that the algebra teachers in the, in the study we were doing of eighth grade math, of middle school math teachers, all were winding up getting high value added because the model hadn't really accounted for the fact that they were teaching higher performing students before we even started to do the modeling. As we fit better and, and more um, accurate models, we were able to remove that, but if uh, sort of some of the models don't really remove that. So you have to be worried about those kinds of more systematic errors as well.
0: Okay. So it seems like um, we're we're in a sort of phase, particularly in the research, but I think also in the policy making where um, people are getting um, focused on refining the measures and refining the sort of accountability. Instruments or levers being used in schools and for teachers. So, um, John, I'll turn this question to you. Um, What's the what could be the impact of this sort of further and further refinement and the focus on growth on teachers, how they teach, how they see themselves as professionals in the classroom?
3: I think that's a very good question. Um, Excuse my voice, folks. I woke up with laryngitis. It's not painful for me, but maybe for you. I think one of the things that Dan said is that we are still learning how to do this, and as we learn how to do it better it, to the outsider, it looks more and more like magic, that we're making all these statistical corrections. We're taking a simple kid's test score, which by the way is magic in itself, but we forget that that there are a lot of calculations that go behind deciding whether a kid's proficient or not. But we take, we take a simple test score, and we do a lot of statistical manipulation to label uh, this teacher or this school as um, oh, two tenths of a standard deviation above the norm, whatever that means. And so it, what we in the, in the science side of things often forget is that when you take this to the real world, you're met with reactions that to, you don't, to, to us don't look rational. But uh, to anybody that studies organizations and studies uh, human behavior, look extremely rational. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty in these measures. And people don't like uncertainty, especially when it's uncertainty uh, about something that they care very much about. So you would stay away from buying a stock that had a more volatile uh, uh, track record than a stock with with a more certain track record if the expected gain was the same. Teachers the same way don't want to be judged by a model that we call just a little noisy. So we are starting to look at behavioral economics and other uh, theories of decision-making and theories of how people operate in groups so we can understand where the reactions to these models are coming to. And, And anybody that's read the news knows that Um, especially on the teacher side and the the educator side, sort of at the school level, there's been a lot of worry that they are going to be held accountable for things they have no control over. They're going to be judged unfairly. If they get a good rating, well, of course. If they get a bad rating, oh, no, it must be some problem with the model. Well, these all fit into um, risk aversion theories, um, self-serving bias theories, um, uh, other um, behavioral decision-making theories about how people are likely to react to, uh, to being faced with these systems. You, you have counter examples. For example, the, uh, there, there are two major teacher organizations in the country, the NEA and the AFT, National Education Association, American Federation of Teachers. Uh, Pittsburgh Public Schools is a uh, AFT local. Um, AFT has, uh, perhaps because they think it's inevitable, they've been much more interested in working with schools and with the scientists to find out how we can do these things in a way that's a win-win. And and Pittsburgh Public Schools is a is an excellent example of how that's happened. Um, A few other things to note is that um, teachers may be the worst possible folks to get judged by these models, where we get a nice bell curve of uh, outcomes. If you look at the distribution of grades in teachers' colleges, where teachers get trained, everybody gets an A. They're all above average compare that to any other major, any other college, engineering, arts and sciences, you get this nice bell curve. You know, it's shifted from C up to being around a B minus or a B average, but it's still, you got winners and losers. You look at teachers' colleges, these are folks who've been told how perfect they were for quite a while. Teacher evaluation systems for a long time. Everybody got the satisfactory or uh, the, the check that allowed them to keep the jobs. In fact, a lot of evaluation was only to weed out the very few that everybody could agree had no business in a school. And what's going on now is an attempt to uh, differentiate our understanding of teachers' contributions in a way that's done in almost every other profession in the world. So I'll.
1: Can I? Yeah. One thing I wanted to add to that is, is, you know, John pointed out um, some of the some of the ways in which teachers have responded to these systems when they're implemented. I think that you know draws our attention to the importance of thinking very carefully about how you design the evaluation system. Um, So, for example, we know that teacher collaboration is is a really important predictor of you know a successful school. Um, the schools that work best are the ones where teachers work well together. they talk with each other about how kids are doing they you know, coordinate with one another they, they have effective relationships with the principal um, so you don 't want to create a system that will damage that collaborative environment by say pitting teachers against one another and saying well we 're going to rank we 're going to rank the top twenty percent of teachers in this school and they 'll get a bonus and no one else will um, so you really need to think very carefully about how you design the system, whether it's competitive or not, um, how realistic the targets are, whether you want to reward individual teachers or whether you want to reward groups of teachers, like, say, at a grade level, Um, and consider what the likely effects of that will be, not only on teachers, you know, how they feel about the system, but on how they're able to work together and how they interact with one another and with their students. So, So having all of that stuff in mind when you design a system rather than just sort of throwing out any pay for performance model that you can think of is is something that that really needs to be well thought out.
0: Yeah, because uh, that's a a really interesting point because my understanding of the work say on pay for performance and some of the other uh, awards for teachers is that given this sort of culture that John has talked about that there's a real uh, there's, there's sort of a real negativity on educators part to raise someone up and give them a reward and that's that's really uh, sort of goes against the culture that's present in schools.
1: Yeah, and I mean, interestingly, they, what we've seen based on surveys is that um, teachers who are now coming into the profession are much more open to these kinds of reforms than teachers who've been in the profession for several decades and have kind of got acculturated into, into the system that we have now. Yeah, and I
3: think that, that feeds into another point that often the short-term effect of new systems is much different than the long-term effect. Partly because you, you have turnover and so the people you, who are attracted to the profession down the road may be people who are much more suited to a new system. And if it's a system that, that has incentives that you like, then maybe in 10 years we'll be where we want to be. But transitions can be very rough for the people involved um, and, uh, f- well, for the outcomes we measure which often leads us to backtrack on things that may be very promising in the long run, but it's a very tough thing, it's a tough kind of knowledge to obtain. What's gonna work in the long run when you're being told you've got two years to evaluate this program, and find out whether it's good or not.
2: Yeah, and to follow up on that, I think the, your, your notion, John, that you know this change is going to be hard. This culture of everyone's average and keeping everything equitable in schools is very pervasive. In, in the paper performance study we did in New York, the, um, the, the study was signed up so that they gave school-wide bonuses. So if a school met a mark, then all the, they would give $3,000 per um, union member in the school. And then the school got to figure out how they divvied that up. So if they wanted to give all the money to one person, the theoretically they could do that. Now I, I don't know if there might have been a limit to how much they could go, but you know basically they could divvy it up how they wanted. But in the end, almost all the teachers got the same amount of money. And all the schools gave everyone the same. They did very little differentiation. And when they did differentiate it was always, it was most often based on how much time someone was in the school. So if someone was only part time in the school or left. So getting over this culture of wanting to make everyone the same would be very hard. And I think As you point out, this notion that that they are all equal is a very hard part of that cultural change.
0: So so given that, and given the culture of schools and where where we are, are there things that we could learn from looking at um, other areas, health? uh, Sure. I
3: I think one of the things that we know is that we can't necessarily look to market solutions because – people are not responding in the way, there isn't an instantaneous market for a good teacher. Um, and if you look to other places where we have a hard time measuring individual output, adjusting compensation for what that individual's productivity is, where there are people that are producing together that have a strong culture, that are combining to produce something that's very difficult to measure. Healthcare is a place like that. We're still learning how to get that right. The military is an excellent example of where you need teams to make a difference. And the way the military has solved this is often by rewarding groups as a whole, by instilling a culture that has uh, uniform values, that's working toward a common goal, where there's great, there's exaggerated, one might say, dependence on your on your mates rather than asking you to produce on your own. Um, one of the other things we've learned uh, looking, especially at healthcare, is there's steps you wanna go through. There's first you wanna do something similar to what NCLB did, which was just start collecting data, start getting kids to take tests, figure out how you might use that, and then try, and so figuring out how you might use that might involve going to a growth measure rather than just looking at who's proficient and who's not. Um, and only after you've sort of worked out all these kinks do you start thinking about how to do pay for performance um, or using it to, to, to rearrange incentives in other ways. Education's tried to compress this into just a few years and I think what we're seeing is a backlash against that um, that that hurry up, we got to fix this right now attitude.
0: Um, I mean, related to that, uh, I know that one of the big issues which we haven't talked about are the assessments and some of the uh, you know we we've only we're only assessing in certain subjects, we're only assessing in certain grades, and so as we think about Um, accountability I mean is should we be concerned about assessments and where we are in the in the development of those
1: yeah I think so Um, you know several years ago there was a big movement towards something called performance assessments which were you know intended to get away from paper and pencil multiple choice and really try to measure um, students ability to do something so carry out a scientific experiment for example Um, and what happened with that movement is that it kind of died um, partly because the costs were so high um, but also because the technical quality of those measures wasn't very good so it turned out for example if you wanted to do these science assessments where you had a kid carry out an experiment and that might take 20 to 25 minutes to do one of those well in order to get a reliable measure of how that students performing in science Um, you'd need to have that kid take a five-hour science test and that's a bad idea for many many reasons Um, and so and and given the pressures of NCLB to get all this testing in place states really backed away from it Um, what we're seeing now though is a lot of um, really creative going work going on in the area of technology Um, some of it um, by our neighbors down the street at Carnegie Mellon Um, But there's a great potential for um, things to be able to to be done on computers that are much more difficult to do on paper or in a hands-on kind of format. So some of these science simulations, for example, you can do more quickly and administer more cheaply on computers. Um, There's now a lot of work going on with automated essay scoring. So um, you know, states have backed away from writing assessments because it costs so much to train people to do the scoring, We now have computers that can can score essays with about the same level of reliability as a trained person. Um, There's still some kinks to be worked out, but I think that there's a lot of potential there. Um, And there's now... Um, Some of you may be aware of the movement toward common state standards. A lot of states have signed on to these um, consortia that are getting together to try to create standards that would be common across multiple states. Um, And the federal government has funded um, an assessment development effort uh, to develop assessments that would be aligned with those standards. So rather than each state being on the hook to develop its own set of tests, you'd have a big collaboration across many states um, who would have similar standards and then a, a set of tests um, that are aligned to those. So there are a lot of, you know, still a lot of unanswered questions. It's not clear how well this will work, but that's certainly a, one direction that we're seeing a lot of movement in.
0: So one of the uh, great things about coming to RAND is getting to sort of see the breadth of research available, and, and some of it you've heard here, but um, in sort of looking across what we know, sort of the difficulties that have occurred around No Child Left Behind, some of the implications for teachers and schools, some of the difficulties in measuring growth, what are the kinds of things looking forward that policymakers, researchers should be thinking about and um, doing and going to the next stage of this?
2: Yeah I, I think there's a couple things that I, I are important for them to be thinking about um, one of the things I think as Laura pointed this out earlier on, the research that that she has done and others have done that have shown that People are very responsive to what's being what they're being measured on, and and then they're they're responsive in ways, as John pointed out, that don't aren't always what we expect. So there's a lot of negative consequences that are potential there. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot. They should be very cognizant of the fact that if we we put a lot of if we put additional weight on these tests, we are going to see additional focus and additional emphasis on the testing. There's, it's it's almost guaranteed we're going to see. I think that's one of the few things in this whole space. That I feel is pretty much a guaranteed kind of thing and I think you know we, we need to make sure that if we're going to be doing that we like the test but I think we also need to be very confident that that probably no one wants you know schools to be all about preparing kids to take tests and so I think you need to be thinking of things that would help to lessen that um, one of the things I think that many places are considering and it's par- part of many of the evaluation kinds of things that are going on is this notion of bringing in other ways of evaluating teachers and making that part of the evaluation so there's a lot of movement to um, improve the general evaluation of teachers through um, different kinds of ways of observing what they're doing. Um, People are looking at things like um, getting student input on what their teachers are doing Mm. or uh, using student work samples, but doing something more than sort of focusing only on the test. So I think these systems are going to need to do that. And I think, by and large, many of the systems that are out there that have sort of developed through the Race to the Top, which um, is, you know, it's a large federal program that's rewarding states to building a teacher and school evaluation um, systems, Many of those are building in some sorts of teacher performance uh, measures, sort of doing the observations. Um, and, um, but still, most of them are putting a lot of weight on the tests. I think we need to think about how those tests are going to, to do that. We also have to know that any way we evaluate teachers based on these things, as I said, there's error in them. So any classification we make is going to be error-prone. And, and I think that um, there are things that we can do to make better use and make, pro- make people less risk adverse and more comfortable using error-prone data. And I think as they're developing systems, they should be doing that. And um, I think one of the examples of that is um, some of the things that are actually going on here in Pennsylvania and in Ohio. For the last uh, seven or eight years here in Pennsylvania, we've had value-added mo- um, estimates at the school level that the state has provided. And we've had people in the state who have gone out and tried to train the schools on how mm-hmm. to use those data. And the same thing, Ohio, people know, uh, Battelle for Kids in Ohio has been doing that. And, and they're really working to try and make these value-added measures and bring them down to the teacher and class level and make them something that people see as part of their ongoing um, quality improvement, their own personal improvement. It's not something that's external and is being heavy-handed pushed on them, but it's a tool that's part of their own you know, personal evaluation and data that's given to them. And I think if, if the system builds more from those kinds of spaces, it seems to me from my own looking at this and the way I look at it in my own personal beliefs, yeah. it feels like there's a way that this could be a much more productive way rather than it's just a sort of a threat and becomes something people respond to in the most negative way. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is things like making the, the data public at the, teacher, at the teacher level and things like reporting in the newspapers and um, making decisions that are very automatic. So, you know, if you don't get over this then, you know, two years and you're out kinds of things. I think those kinds of things feel much, much less likely to lead to very productive uses. The things making them available to the public, it's not really clear to me what kind of, how individual parents are going to make you know, productive decisions about what to do with teacher value added. Um, it's also clear that if we make these very automatic decisions, they're going to make mistakes, there's going to be little recourse for them, and it's going to get tied up in litigation that's clearly going to find very easily find all the errors and value added and so sort of demonstrate why, why these things don't work. And I think, but I think if there's ways to sort of take away some of that and make it part of an ongoing way where it's human beings judge making, using human judgment is still part of the overall decision, I think it could be more productive.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think it's real important to take a, a, a long range look at this. You know, why are we in the position we are in today, A 100 years ago, when, or almost 100 years ago, when my grandpa? took his first teaching job, he he, he was just, he hadn't even graduated from high school, but the last teacher had been run out, they needed somebody, he was a smart kid, they put him in there. And we moved, and I think Grandpa was a good teacher, but I'm not sure. And I'm sure they weren't paying much attention either, they just needed a body in there. So, one of the reasons we've moved to, The system we have today where every teacher gets paid the same based on how long they've been there and what their highest degree was, is because it became a civil service kind of affair. Education is a a publicly provided good. It's uh, an arm of the local government in most cases, and there are some good reasons for that. We don't necessarily want to privatize education, though there are many people talking about that. But because it's a government-provided good, there's no market that closes the school when it doesn't perform well. People may move out of town, but it's a very imperfect incentive mechanism. But what we've now found is that that bureaucratic approach, that public service system where we have a hard time really knowing who's good and who's not, just doesn't work, and we need to get better at measuring. But I still think there's this fear that what we're going to go to is the old system where the boss could hire their nephew. And nobody's really paying attention to who's good, but it's going to become completely nepotistic. It's going to have nepotism in it. And and we don't necessarily want to go to that. So we're trying to professionalize the evaluation um, function, train supervisors to to evaluate teachers according to a... Uh, specified rubric so the teachers know how they're being evaluated and so there's some validity to this that if you have supervisor a you get evaluated the same way if you have supervisor B once again this takes time to develop and we're seeing the pendulum swing this way but don't don't think it's gonna be perfect for Before your grandchildren are out of school. (laughs)
1: Right. And and I think it's important to remember that, you know, a, a lot of times in these debates, teachers have been kind of demonized. There's been a sense that, you know, they're opposed to accountability. They don't want anyone to measure their performance. And that's has not been my experience in talking with the vast majority of teachers. They actually want information and feedback. They want to improve their practices, and they want to do what's best for their students. We just don't currently have systems that give them that kind of information. And so when we're thinking about you know, putting in a new testing system. Well, the current system, you don't get the scores back until after the kids have left your classroom. We, we do it once a year. It doesn't necessarily match up to what your curriculum is. If you instead give teachers an assessment system that gives them ongoing information that allows them to make adjustments um, to identify which students may need particular help in a particular area, um, that's the kind of thing that teachers are really um, you know, asking for. Um, and would welcome. And so, you know, we need to think, as Dan mentioned, about systems that are not only used to make decisions about teachers and principals, but systems that provide data back to those folks so that they can improve their own practice. Um, and that's something that I think um, is, is doable. Um, we, we sort of know how to do it, and it's something that I think, um, you know, educators would welcome and would, you know, improve the, the um, quality of the debate around these policies.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the focus has been on creating a system of accountability rather than a system that helps teachers improve their practice or schools improve themselves. And so, most of the policy focus is on how do we know who's good and who's bad, exactly. and that's not necessarily the kinds of information that help teachers improve. Is that?
3: Yeah, there's a big literature um, on uh, the difference between. Uh, people and professions that seem to work on internal motivation versus external motivation. Uh, we don't pay teachers' peace rate for a reason. These are people, like many healthcare providers, like many social service providers, that are there because they want to be there. They, they see this as a sacrifice. They could have been a banker, they think. And by, by paying them peace rate, you're, you're, you're demeaning them in some sense. So uh, instead, taking a, an approach like the military takes, which is uh, changing the culture, could end up with a more effective um, uh, outcome in the long term, though uh, it, we don't know that.
0: Okay, well, we, we've had a, a, an interesting discussion, I think, but I think one of the things that I certainly take away from this is just how difficult this is um, where it's an imperfect system that's not going to get perfect anytime soon and that one of the things is that we need to be cognizant of um, time and how long it's really going to take uh, to make the kinds of refinements in the system that could, in fact, improve schools. And I think we often lose sight of that, particularly in policy conversations where we want it done yesterday uh, and we want schools to be better today. And they just aren't able to respond. We aren't able, as researchers, even to help them respond in that kind of way. Um, I also think that um, it's clear that we need to think about the the systems that are developed and having multiple measures. That you know, uh, we've all talked. All the panelists have talked about the imperfections or the the noisiness of some kinds of measures and that these certainly need to be offset by not relying on just one and, and that we become, I think, concerned as researchers when we hear about systems that say it's only going to be test scores and it's only going to be uh, using a particular method and that that becomes really dangerous. Um, so I hope that you've enjoyed our discussion. Um, we are very happy and interested in hearing your questions and, and how and your comments about what was said today. This presentation is provided as a public service by the Rand Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at Rand, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.